As we continue, I hope that that question facilitated some great discussion around your tables. Is your life an open book? How so, how not? I think part of answering that question would include answering another question. Is there anything in your life, past or present, that you would be afraid of someone in particular finding out about? Is there anything in your life any secret, any skeleton in the closet, anything hidden. Now, that doesn't mean that being open and your life being an open book means that you have to proactively get the word out. It doesn't mean you have to stand on the mountaintop and shout it out for the whole world to, see, to hear. That doesn't mean you have to put an ad in the Omaha World Herald. You know, that doesn't mean you have to make a DVD and circulate it all over. But are you free to be known? Are you free for someone to find out something about you, past or present? Not that you have to tell anybody, not that you have to tell everybody. But here's an acid test, I believe. Is there someone? that you would be afraid of them finding out. For example, uh, I did a lot of things in the past, some of those things you've heard me say in Fresh Start and Freedom, and there's always more, so it's not like I have to strain to tell everything, but I can honestly say that there is nothing that I would be afraid that my mother would ever find out about, there's nothing that I'd be afraid of my wife finding out about. There's nothing that I would be afraid, fill in the blank, of anybody finding out about. I'm free. I've, I've been wrong in many ways. So have you. So have all of us. And it's not like we have to broadcast it. But is there anything that you are hiding? Is there anything secret? Is there anything hidden? That's, that's, what we want to that's what we want to be free from because that's part of the seedbed. That's part of the seedbed of duplicity. Last week we talked about the seedbed. I gave that case study of that extreme situation, the case study of Sam, who had a 15-year run, a bad run, a lifestyle of sexual immorality at the extreme. But the seedbed was common to man. The seedbed, unforgiveness, that's not unusual. Hatred, that's not unusual. Pride, that's not unusual. Those things were a part of the seedbed that led to his life expressing itself in a duplicitous way. For him, he was living a double life. But underneath it, unforgiveness toward his wife. And really living out this life of revenge against her and more and more self-hatred towards himself. Those things were the seedbed. And you know, when you start going down this road of duplicity, the further you go down this road, that road, the darker it gets, and the more self-deceived you become, and the more hardened your life becomes, 
And the harder it is to make that spiritual U-turn and come back. Does God have strong thoughts about duplicity? I think so. Let's look at Acts, the fifth chapter. Acts, the fifth chapter. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know whether you've ever thought of this as a duplicitous act, but it is a prime example of duplicity. You know the story. Acts 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Different ones were selling property and giving the money to the community of faith. They were all sharing together in common. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Basically what was going on is he sold it for a particular amount of money. And what he did is he could have just told the truth. He, he could have, it would have been okay for him to sell it for whatever he wanted to sell it for. It was their property. It was their prerogative. And it would have been totally fine with the Lord if they would have sold it for one amount of money and said, this is what we sold it for, and this is what we're giving today. A lesser amount. But they didn't represent it that way. They, rep they misrepresented what had really happened. It was like they sold it for a particular amount of money. And they represented something different in terms of what they brought to the table. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Did it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. So here again, representing that they were bringing the whole thing. So let's say, they, I'm just going to use round numbers, let's say that they sold it for $1,000, but that they were representing that they sold it for 500 and they brought 500 to the table as if that was the sale price. When in fact 1,000 was and they were keeping the 500. They were misrepresenting. And like I said before, they could have said, you know, we sold it for 1,000, we're gonna get 500. But what they represented was misrepresentation. It was not the truth. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. God has strong thoughts about duplicity. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward. Then young men came forward, uh, wrapped up his body, and carried it out and, and buried him. About three years, about three hours later, rather, three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. But that wasn't the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of, of the Lord? Look, 
the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and carried then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who were and all who heard about these events. We could talk about what motivated them to um, misrepresent. You know, were they competing? Did they want to be the biggest givers? You know, was it was it motivated by pride and you know? You know, this is what we're giving today, and, you know, it's the most that's been given to date. You know, we want to maintain that status. Somebody else had given something. They want to give. I don't know. We could talk about that. That's, a, that's for another day. But for, day, for today, we have a prime example of presenting themselves to appear, to appear what they were not. To live and present yourself in a way, to pose, to represent yourself in a way that is not the truth. And here we have a hint, I believe, as to what the antidote for, du for duplicity is. What happened after God judged their actions? Fear. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the antidote for a life of duplicity. The fear of the Lord is the antidote for a lack of integrity. The fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is reverencing him first, taking him most seriously above all else, not taking yourself so seriously, not taking others too seriously, and Jesus being the reason that we tell the truth. Jesus being the reason that we do what we do or refrain from doing a particular thing. He is simply the reason. He's the reason we forgive. He's the reason we ask for forgiveness. He's the reason we live a life of integrity. He is the reason we're willing to have an open book. He is the motivator. He is the reason and our relationship with him, the core of that our relationship with him, because we know we're not going to deceive ourselves. How can we have an intimate relationship with the Lord when we're living a lie? How can we have an intimate relationship with the Lord if we have sin in our life, if we have unforgiveness in our life? If we have iniquity in our hearts, he will not hear us. How can we think that we'll have close fellowship with him with duplicity? How could we think that? We're deceiving ourselves. We're kidding ourselves. And because we so value, because we so treasure relationship with him, intimacy with him, more than any other relationship, more than the fear of man, more than a promotion, more than being the biggest, having the status of being the biggest giver, more than the acceptance of man, the favor of man, the approval of man, more than anything else, we want to be esteemed of God and be in right relationship with him. And what does it say in Isaiah 66? Isaiah 66, verse 2, part B. This is the one I esteem. This is the Lord talking. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble 
and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That sounds like somebody that takes him very seriously. Now, are we afraid if we make one wrong move, we're going to get, he's going to zap us? You know, one wrong move, you know, one lie, one misstep, and we're done, we're vaporized. No, that's not what we're talking about. That's not the fear we're talking about. It's not a fear-based living. It's a love-based life. Because we want, as sons and daughters, to please our Father out of love. Because we love. Not because, oh, I better be good. I better be good or I'm going to get killed. I better be good or I'll be wiped out. If I better be good or I'll be dead. That's not what we're talking about. And yet we realize we're not going to get by with anything. <laughs> we don't want to get by with anything either. It reminds me of what it says in Numbers 32.23. Let's, let's turn there. Numbers 32.23. You can read the verses preceding this. But verse 23 says, Numbers 32, verse 23, it says, But if you fail to do this, and you can read later what that is, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you will be sure, and may you be sure, that your sin will find you out. (laughs) Oh, wow! I'm not going to get by with anything, am I? Your sin will find you out. Numbers 32. Numbers 32, 23. Now, are we trying, to, am I trying to cultivate a, uh, a life of, oh, I better watch every move I make. I better be good. I better be on my best behavior. No, 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 no. It's not like that in a fear-based way because if it's fear-based, it's going to be self-centered, and if it's self-centered, it'll be pride-based, and then if you're doing well, you'll be happy with yourself, and if you're not, you'll be down on yourself, and it'll be all about you, and you'll always be on your mind. Now, that is not what he's up to. That's not what he wants. It's all about relationship. That's the core, relationship with him. We want him. We want more of him. We want intimacy with him. We know this is a treasure. Our hearts used to be trouble. Now they're treasures since Jesus moved in. And our relationship is a treasure to be protected and preserved and nourished and cultivated. And it's all about him. He's the goal. He's the reason. He's our life. And that's going to lead us into and guide us into a life of integrity where we'll be seeing things from his point of view. Humility opens your eyes to see. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, seeing things from God's point of view. It may be, what you see may be hard to see. (laughs) I mean, it might be something in your life that you're grieved about. It might be something in somebody else's life that you're grieved about. But then we couple that with The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, what does the mourning refer to? Mourning over your sin and the sins and or the sins of others. That's the mourning that that's referring to. In Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, 
The core meaning of that is, blessed are those who mourn over their own sins and the sins of others. They will be comforted. A prideful heart will not be comforted. Self, a self-sufficient heart will not be comforted. A bitter heart refuses to be comforted. A humble heart, agreeing with God, totally dependent, is able to receive comfort. Even the comfort of forgiveness, having repented of my sin. God has strong thoughts on a life of duplicity. Let's turn back to Romans, the fifth chapter, or excuse me, Proverbs, the fifth chapter. I don't know where Romans came from. Um, Proverbs, the fifth chapter. Let's turn back there. There are some descriptive words there that really will help us further. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord. Are we living our life realizing <laughs> he's the God who sees, he knows it all. Maybe somebody else isn't seeing, but he is seeing. So the waitress today, if you go to a place to eat after this meeting or the third service, depending on your timetable, you go to a restaurant and they don't charge you for the iced tea. Are you going to say something? There's something they left out, they didn't charge. Are you going to say something? Logic could say their prices are too high. The service wasn't that good today. Forget it. Or who's watching? <laughs> Who knows? The eyes of the Lord go to and fro across the face of the earth. And he's seeking those that will obey him on his terms and love him on his terms and walk in humility and the fear of the Lord. And some may say, well, that sounds kind of legalistic. That sounds kind of religious. Aren't you getting kind of particular, Steve? I think God's particular. But he wants love-based. I'm not talking pharisaical. That wasn't love-based. That was pride-based. That was fear. They were imparting fear in those days. Pride-based and imparting fear. That wasn't about love. That wasn't grace and truth. David Anderson shared a book with me here a while back called The Grace and Truth Paradox. We have extra copies. We may not have any on the table, but it's a great book. Truth without grace isn't truth. Grace without truth isn't grace. Grace, unmerited favor, but the truth of God's word and his holiness. So it's not about religiosity. It's not about legalism. It's not about sinless perfection. It's about purity of heart, humility of heart, and love-based living to an audience of one. Because he's the one that matters. Most. Others matter for the sake of relationship, and others matter for the sake of influence. But he matters most as far as our lives and how we live. As we take a look at this passage as we go further, for a man's ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all his paths. We're on paths. What paths are we taking today? 
We can start going down paths and take baby steps down those paths, and before we know it, we don't even realize how far we've gone. This, this man, this, the story of Sam that I told last time, 15 years of sexual immorality, and he'd gone so far down that path, and as I shared with you last time, he was having sexual encounters on the drop of a hat. His wife would ask him to go to the grocery store, and before he came home, he'd have a sexual contact. He'd go to the dry cleaners and have sex with the woman behind the counter before he left. He'd go into a bar, restaurant, or whatever, a public place, and he could tell who was weak and vulnerable. He had radar, all right. It wasn't Holy Spirit radar. He had so given himself to this life that it became more than a willingness factor to get out. His ability had been severely impaired. And you know, I, I'm thinking of people, uh, nobody in this room, but I'm thinking of people that I know of right now, that if I can say this way, with all imperf imperfect perception, uh, imperfect discernment, God knows perfectly, he sees all, we only see in part, but there's at least a couple of people that I know in these days that I'm concerned. I'm concerned for their safety. I'm concerned for their life. Because I'm seeing them live a life of duplicity. It's a dangerous path to be on. It was dangerous for Ananias and Sapphira. And as we look on, as we read on, In Proverbs 5:22, the evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him back. Now, the evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. As I've done study on this, the parallel passage, passages are all they're relating to this 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 one, the this these unfaithful ones who are living lives of duplicity. The Bible is calling them wicked. The Bible is calling them sinners. That's God. He's always right. I'm reading. I'm listening. I'm asking for personal application and what I can share with you to help you and also for you to help others and pray for others. The evil deeds of, of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of sin hold him fast. Do you see the picture there? The cords of sin really getting a grip on us, severely impairing our ability. So we're, we're totally not helping if we're trying to encourage somebody or, or rescue someone who is in a life of duplicity. We're, we're, we're totally giving a generalized, incomplete message if we just say, just stop. Just get out of that. Though that may be true, they do need to stop. They do need to get out of it. But... For so many, it isn't just an ability or a choice factor, rather. It's not just a simple choice. Now, do they have a responsibility? Of course. Is there any excuse? No way. Is it understandable? Yes. Because the darker you go down, I mean, the further you go down that road, the darker it gets. And the more your ability is impaired. It's a dangerous road. Duplicity is a dangerous road to go down, because you lie to yourself on that road. You play games with your mind. You don't face reality. You don't walk in humility. You don't allow yourself to be accountable 
You don't allow yourself to be known. And at the extreme, you are living that double life like the story of Sam. And the cords of sin are ensnaring you all the more. And verse 23, he will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Ah, now we're getting into some language of concern, if, as if we don't have that language already. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Let's look at Proverbs 131. Proverbs 131. Starting with verse 29, you could read the whole chapter, but picking it up at 29, you can read the whole chapter later. 29, since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. And now verse 31 and 32, yes, 32 as well. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Another thought that occurs to me is sometimes in this path of duplicity, which full-blown duplicity, living a double life, is to live as a fool. Now, right away, you might be thinking of that passage in Matthew, the fifth chapter, that warns us, cautions us not to call anybody a fool. And I'm not just throwing out that name indiscriminately. If we take a look at that passage later on, I really believe what, what uh, the Lord is saying through that passage is don't throw that around out of anger. You know, you get mad at somebody, oh, they're just a fool. I can't stand them. They're just a fool. It's out of a wrong attitude. It's out of anger, resentment, bitterness. It's labeling people. It's unrighteously judging them. But always make a distinction. Though we only see in part, God deals with reality. And it's kind of like he doesn't want us to live a life where the, it's, got, it's the proverbial elephant in the living room. Well, the elephant's there. Nobody's saying anything. I better not say anything either because if I do, I'm judging. No, no, no. If the elephant is there, agree with God. Now, the attitude we convey is the issue with God. It, wouldn't, it would be a prideful attitude to say, doesn't anybody see this elephant? Am I the only one that has any wisdom around here? The rest of you dummies, you fools? No, that wouldn't be pleasing to God, would it? Attitude matters to God, matters most. <laughs> because words come out of a heart, and heart is linked to attitude. So even in that passage, no, we shouldn't be throwing it around. That person's just a fool. Well... If we look at God's definition of what a fool is, can we agree with God? And as I'm looking and doing more and more study on what the Bible says about what a fool is, that really gets my attention, and I'm just going to agree with God. 
Having said that, a person living a full-blown duplicitous life or even a semi-duplicitous life didn't start off that way. The Bible refers to the simple and sometimes or not sometimes, we could refer to the simple as someone who's kind of on the naive side and maybe they don't know any better and although we're responsible for what we could know. But the one who is a fool used to be simple. And I really believe there's a, there's a crossroads here. You may start off simple, a, a, an element of not knowing any better and kind of a, a naivete and uh, uh, no intention. You know, your motive is not, to e is not evil. Your motive is not to do harm. Your motive is not to manipulate or get your way. All of that is true. But if we keep on going down this road of not knowing what we could know and not making provision to walk in humility and the fear of the Lord, then we could come to a crossroads, and here's the crossroads. The simple becoming wise, or the simple becoming fools. The repentant simple person wants to see things from God's point of view and live a lifestyle of humility and the fear of the Lord. If a person doesn't make that turn, that spiritual U-turn, if you will, then the simple will become a fool by God's definition. And that's part of what I'm describing here today with the duplicitous person is that by God's biblical definition, they're living like a fool. How does the Bible describe a fool? Let's turn to Psalm 14.1. Psalm 14.1, and you can make note or you can follow, but I'm going to move quickly. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Isn't that interesting? That's, that gets to the point, doesn't it? And then in Proverbs 15.5, going back to Proverbs A fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. So there's a contrast. A fool spurns discipline. Remember back in Proverbs 5.22, it was speaking of those that were being referred to as dying for lack of discipline. Proverbs 17.28. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent. Proverbs 18, 2, A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him. And then verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. That speaks of how we relate to a fool. 
We really need the mind of the Lord on how to respond to a fool. In the first verse, it basically, wisdom would say, don't say anything, don't even dignify it. In the second example, speak the truth in love, let them have the last say. Deliver the package, don't get in the web, stay out of the web. And then in Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. There again, contrasts help us in our definitions. And then in Proverbs 26, 11, Proverbs 26, 11, and what a vivid picture this is. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. There are some Hebrew words that um, are helpful, and I'm not trying to impress you with Hebrew words, but one is spelled K-E-S-I-L, and it means thick-headed, stubbornness, uh, rejects information, K-E-S-I-L. And that is referred to in Proverbs 15, Proverbs 15, 14. The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Isn't that interesting, the contrast there? The discerning heart seeks knowledge. There, there we see a picture of seeking to understand, listening, seeking to understand, contrasted with a mouth. <laughs> the one refers to ears. The fool is using his mouth, but the mouth of the fool feeds on folly. Here again, the Greek, or excuse me, the Hebrew word would be thick-headed, stubborn, and rejecting information. And then there's an interesting one, another one, it's uh, Nabal, N-A-B-A-L, and you, remember, you may remember the story in the Bible with Abigail and Nabal. Interesting, how would you like to have the name Nabal? It means... I will meet my own needs. I am enough. N-A-B-A-L. And there it is. It's, um, it goes back to what I said earlier. There is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I will meet my own needs. I am enough. And then finally, E-W-I-L, Proverbs 1-7 Proverbs 1.7, and that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Hardening, unbending is the meaning of that Hebrew word. So we have a picture of a fool emerging, thick-headed, stubborn, rejecting information, not very teachable. Uh, I will meet my own needs. I'm enough, self-sufficient. And then hardened and unbending. That doesn't sound like the profile of someone who's an open book. That doesn't sound like the profile of one who's willing to be known. That doesn't sound like the profile of one who is teachable. That's how the Lord is describing. And there's more. Those are just some of the verses of how the Lord is describing a fool. So even as we've started on this series, and today will be the second and final uh, part of this series, f becoming free 
from duplicity, we see that a duplicitous person, among other things, is living the life of a fool. And I would say this, in great danger, in great danger. I think of my own father, for example. I would never want to dishonor him, but just observable phenomena, I don't think I'm dishonoring him. Here again, just as Ananias and Sapphira faced the judgment of God and fear gripped the hearts of those that were there, I don't know whether my father's death was the judgment of God or not, but I do know this. My father had a lot of light. And then, late in his life, he began to turn from that light. And he began to fulfill more and more of the description that I've just given. And he left my mother. He got involved with someone else. He would not turn from the way he was on. And one day I went into his office, and I had written out some scriptures. I was a fairly new believer. It was in the late 70s. I'd come, I had come to the Lord in 1974, and I was in the real estate business at that time, and my dad owned the company. So I went into his office, and I said, I'd like to talk to you. I forgot how I presented it, but I tried to be uh, entreating in my approach, not coming across um, in any kind of a disrespectful way. But um, I had written out verses from Proverbs, basically wanting to share with him that if he were to continue on this path, that his life would be in jeopardy. And I tried to communicate it with all humility. And he, I hardly finished. I hardly finished. He took that piece of paper, he threw it to the side, and he says, and he said, my God doesn't deal that way. And I walked out of his office. I had done what the Lord had led me to do. <clears throat> and uh, needless to say, it, wasn't e it was not easy working with him in those days because he was not facing reality. He was pretending that everything was fine, and it wasn't. He was Mr. Positive, but there was a lot of negative behind the scenes. And then, shortly thereafter, we were, we were and are big red fans, and, and he, he had a plane, and he asked me to go down to the Oklahoma game in November of 1979, and it was down in Norman that year. And he asked if I wanted to go. And I did have another, I did have a legitimate uh, conflict, and I was not able to go. But when I got off the phone, I turned to Mindy and I said, you know, we've flown with my dad before. I know he's a very conscientious, careful pilot. But I don't think I should fly with him anymore. I really believe that his life is at risk because of what I'm reading. Now, did God want it that way? No. Was God, does God look for a way to get us? No. But God is not mocked. 
Galatians 6, he will not allow his precepts to be set aside, and he inevitably deceives himself, who attempts to deceive God. If I can't even say it that way, how can anybody deceive God? How, how can anybody think they were deceiving God? Ananias and Sapphira. How could they think they could get by with that? My dad, with all the light he had, how could he think he could... How could he think there wouldn't be a harvest? How could he think there wouldn't be? And what would the harvest look like? It can vary. Well, it was shortly after that he traveled to Columbus on a Sunday afternoon and died in a plane crash later that night. And interestingly enough, observable phenomenon those that were in the plane were involved with or supported that relationship. The woman he was involved with, her mother, her sister and her husband, and one of the children of the woman he was involved with, all six died in that plane crash. Did God take that plane that day and throw it to the ground? That's not the picture I see. But my incomplete picture, and it's always incomplete because we only see in part, my incomplete picture we've read in Proverbs 129. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and they spurned my rebuke, They'll eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens... But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. The waywardness of the simple will kill them. Fools don't become fools overnight. It starts off with being, with being wayward, going our way, perhaps naively so, not willfully, rebelliously, defiantly, doing our own thing. But if you continue on that path, it's the path that becomes a fool. You know how it is with some streets. It starts off being named a particular street, and the name changes. We were on a street the other day in, uh, up by Emmanuel Hospital, and I can't remember the name of the street. It was one particular name, but it became Ames Avenue. It was the same street, but the name of the street changed. Are you on the wayward street of the simple this morning? If you continue on that street, the name of the street will change, and it will be the way of the fool. But it will sneak up on you, 
because part of the duplicitous life is, is living a self-deceived life, living a lie. And in some cases at the extreme, the truth becomes a lie and the lie becomes the truth, <laughs> becomes the truth. And it doesn't have to be this way. Even as I've shared what I've shared today, starting to talk about the simple and the fool, we're going to be transitioning into a new series on July 9th. Next week will be just before the 4th of July. So once again, <laughs> start, stop, start, stop. Once again, we won't be having freedom next Sunday because of the holiday, the 4th of July holiday, a couple of days later. But then the 9th, we'll be back, and here is the name of the new series. It's another freedom series, and it's called Foolproof Solutions for Impossible Relationships. Do you have any fools in your life? We not only want to address issues in our hearts so that we repent of being a fool or repent of being simple or repent of being duplicitous and repent of the seedbed that feeds all of that. Yes, it starts with us, doesn't it? We want that. I hope we do. But then, how about the people we're in relationship with? How do we relate to them? That can be quite challenging. Relating to one who is manipulative and turning the tables and very challenging. Getting angry, giving you the silent treatment, always living a life of drama or whatever that you're getting sucked into. Different ways we can describe it. Foolproof. It's been inspired by a book that I'm reading and we're ordering copies called uh, Foolproofing Your Life by jo Jan uh, Silvius, I believe is the name of uh, her name, the pronunciation of her name. We're going to get copies of that book and that'll be a resource to us. I'm reading this book now, Mindy has. It is an incredible book. It will help us. It will help us. I mean, it'll help us make application in our own lives, and it will help us in how we can relate on God's terms to others, some of whom are the simple on their way to becoming a fool, and some of whom, by biblical definition, no judgment, unrighteous judgment intended, no name-calling, no anger-motivated labeling, but observable phenomena seems to fit the description of what God calls a fool. How can I love them on God's terms? How can I relate to them on God's terms? Foolproof solutions for impossible, because it does seem impossible at times, relationships. As we close our time today, and as we prepare to transition into another Freedom Series. Let's take a few moments.
How is it with you? I pray that you haven't felt one ounce of condemnation here today. I pray that you haven't felt one ounce of unrighteous judgment or accusation. I pray that you feel safe here and that this is a safe place to be honest with ourselves. You know, there may be some people in our life it isn't safe to be honest with, and it wouldn't be wise to be honest with them totally, to share our whole heart with them. That would not even be wise. Well, for one thing, and we'll, know, we'll hear more about this in the weeks to come, for one thing, if they're a fool, it definitely isn't wise. No judgment intended, no unrighteous judgment intended. But are we free to be an open book? Do we have to be with everybody? No. Are we free to be? To whatever degree that the Lord is inviting us to be. That's the definition of freedom as it relates to that. So what road are you on this morning? Are you on the path of integrity? There's always more. No sinless perfection. We're all in process. Or are, are you on the road of duplicity? And maybe the name of the street right now is Simple, Simple Street, but Simple Street won't stay Simple Street. Simple Street will become Foolish Street. And then we're definitely into a life of duplicity. And it's a dangerous life. It could actually cost us our life. Not because God wants it that way. But that's what's at stake. And, and why is it important to uh, be a part of the solution in way of prayer? Because as we have people in our life, and I have people in my life that, I, like I said earlier, I'm concerned for their lives. I'll be honest with you. I am concerned for their lives. Uh, sadly, it would not surprise me if I got word today of their death. That would not surprise me. It would grieve me. It would cut me to the core. But they're on a dangerous path. The, the path of duplicity is a dangerous path. The path of foolishness is a dangerous path. But it doesn't have to be that way for us, does it? And we can be a part of the solution, obviously, with personal application and playing the role, the part in prayer and presence and word or confrontation out of love, having already forgiven, love motivated, no matter how it's responded to, but we're going to obey in the life of another. So, Lord, I just pray as we take these few moments to examine our hearts, Is there anything in us, Lord, that's displeasing to you? I know you don't want us to be introspective, Lord. Not be on a sin hunt. We aren't the Holy Spirit. You are. But I pray that each one will allow themselves to be known, especially by you, who already knows but that we will become active participants in allowing ourselves to be known by you and others with wisdom, with humility, and with the fear of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this time.
Thank you, Lord. It's never too late for us to take that spiritual U-turn. It's never too late to embark into a life of integrity. I'd just like to give opportunity if there's, if it would help you today, and, and only if it'll help you, no pressure, if, if there's something that you know has, has been hidden in your life and uh, as a part of your obedience commitment to the Lord, if you're prepared to bring that out into the light with wisdom. For example, it could include more than one thing. In a marriage context, it could include unfaithfulness. And uh, if you have uh, a secret sin in your life and you've been unfaithful to your uh, husband or wife, uh, as in acting it out, or if you have been uh, getting into pornography uh, or romance novels or something else in secret. And, and here again, the question is, would you, be <clears throat> would you be afraid? Do you know it's wrong? Do you, would you be afraid if uh, your spouse found out, for example, just using that as an example? It's time to bring it out in the light, but I'm saying the time doesn't mean you leave this room, you go home and say, honey, there's something I've got to tell you. Not to approach it like that necessarily. But what is going to help you bring it out into the light? Would it help you to have somebody from the Completing Christ team? Would it help you to have a, a pastor, a director, a, a team member that you, that you know and trust? Would it, would it help to have somebody like that present when you bring things out into the light? Would that help? If it would, we want to be committed to you in that way. There's a time and a timing. I'm not saying we should compromise and you know, procrastinate because delayed obedience is disobedience, but, but it starts with a commitment in our heart. It, it starts with a decision in our heart, I will be known. Now, Lord, how do I do that? It starts with a decision in our heart, I'm going to bring this out into the light. There'll be no secret sins in my life. Okay, now how do I... How do I do that? How do I convey that? One precedes the other, but there won't be the second part unless there's the first part. And sometimes people don't get to the first part, and then they don't get to the other parts, and they continue on more and more in a foolish life and a life of duplicity. And it's, you can see from what we've read today, it's... <laughs> It's a sin against a holy God. It's dangerous. It's, it's not the route you want to go. And not even to mention the eternal consequences, which matter most of all. Most of all. Most of all, the eternal consequences. So as you're praying, as you're considering, I pray that you'll keep that in mind that with your willingness to be known, there still is a need for wisdom. Let the Completing Christ team, for example, or someone you know and trust, help you navigate that. Not to control it, not to rule it. We want the Holy Spirit to rule it, but to help you and assist you. So having said that, if there's something that you are ready to bring out into the light, if there's something that's been hidden, if there's something that needs to change, would you write it on a piece of paper now crumple it up and bring it to the cross. One of our team members will shred the paper. We're not going to read it, so you don't have to be afraid of that. We will shred it. It won't be thrown in the wastebasket for somebody to find it. 
This is between you and the Lord, but I believe if this will help you, you don't have to do this. Only if this will help you. Sometimes these kind of things help. It's like we need to be so specific, we're going to write it on a piece of paper, we're going to look at it, we're going to own it, and we're going to, you know, I'm, I'm going, it's now, it's time, it's time. I'm not going to have any provision for foolishness, duplicity. I, I'm, I'm going to bring this out into the light. I don't know what, I may not know what the next step is, but I'm going to take this step. You know, interestingly enough, that's how God works. Sometimes we don't know subsequent steps because it's kind of like we want to know all the steps before we take the first step. And the Lord is saying, until you take the first one, I'm not going to show you more. Yes, God parted the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites to go through. But later on, when they were prepared to go in and take the land, the land flowing with milk and honey, God worked in a different way. He didn't part the, wa the waters of the River Jordan in advance. He waited until the Levites, the priests, stepped into the water, stepped into the water and took, those, took that step. And then he parted. So if you're wondering and maybe confused because you're thinking, what does all this lead to? Let's simplify. What's the next step? Then you'll see the next one. Then you'll see the next one. Then you'll see the next one. That's the opposite of this path of foolishness and uh, duplicity because it gets darker and darker on that road. I'm inviting you to step into one that's filled with light and you'll be able to see clearly. So, I'm, as I'm praying, and before you leave, without any fanfare or further attention, just between you and the Lord, write it out, put it on a piece of paper, crumple it up, leave it at the cross. Jesus paid it all. And you're agreeing with him. You're agreeing with him. You're disconnecting. You're dying to it. You're identifying with his death, death to that duplicity, death to that secret sin, death to that, separation from that. Leave it there and let that be a reminder of what he's done. And now let him be alive in you to do a new thing. I'll pray you come or be free between you and the Lord, whatever would help you. Lord, thank you for this time. Continue to add the increase to it. Continue to seek speak to our hearts throughout this day, making so clear, Lord, what you want, exchanging a life of duplicity for a life of integrity, knowing that the antidote for duplicity is humility and the fear of the Lord. And in that, Lord, there'll be riches and honor and life from you instead of death, a living death at least, and the potential for physical and even spiritual separation from you. Oh, Lord, this has eternal ramifications. I pray we would have our eyes wide open here this morning and our hearts wide open to you. Thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for the process you have us in of freedom becoming fully alive. In Jesus' name, amen.